Let's pray. Father in heaven, in our last presentation, we humbly ask for your Holy Spirit to give us light and peace and understanding. And Lord, I pray that you may again speak to your people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's the reason why Rome fell? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. What does that text say? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. It says, For the love of money is the what? The root of what? All evil. So the love of money, like we learned, is not this money, but the love of money, worshiping lovers of pleasure, materialism, right? Loving our God of America is, is money, right? And you compare that, rather than lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, materialism, we worship the God of money today. And so, you know, even in the last days, Satan's going to use this, our love of money against us, because there's going to come a point where we can't even buy or sell with that money anymore. And we're going to be caught to a choice between worshiping the God of heaven or the God of money. And many will fall because of that. Now, the root of all evil. You know, this, the danger about, about money, loving money, we all know that selfishness is the root of all evil or the root of all sin. Thus, when we love money selfishly, it will always lead to sin. You see, a selfish heart will always lead to a self-centered, ease-loving, pleasure-seeking, luxurious lifestyle. For the motive behind the desire for luxury and modern conveniences is selfishness, so you can be comfortable. And that's what the focus of um, this emphasis is today. Now turn me to a story in Luke chapter 12 in your Bibles, please. Luke chapter 12, verse 16 in your Bibles, verse 221. Luke chapter 12, verse 16 and 21. What happened to the man who lived in selfish ease. Luke chapter 12, verse 16 to 21. Notice the Bible says, Jesus spake here a parable unto them, saying, and this is what he said, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought with him, himself, saying, what should I do because I have no room to bestow my fruits? And he said, this will I do. I'm going to pull down all my barns and build greater barns, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. I'm going to knock down my barns and make these big barns and put all my blessings and all my money and all my gifts and all store all my stuff I have because I have so much good stuff. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. I kinda, this is called a Thompson interpretation, okay, while I'm reading it. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, thou fool. This night your soul will be required of thee. In other words, tonight you're going to die. Whose these things shall be when you have, which you have provided? This man was blessed by God, but he only lived to bless himself afterwards. And he decided he would hoard everything he had. He lived in selfish ease, selfish pleasure, and selfish luxury. But God called him a fool and then said to his soul, What would that would be taken that night? Who's going to enjoy these things which I worked so hard to provide yourself with? Now that you're dead. Now sometimes we have to go through hard times and maybe to sickness and maybe to lose our health or maybe in the hospital, we went to the emergency room, we come back and we stay in our home, maybe we're stuck at our home and there's times when we're all alone and realize that we're losing our health and could possibly lose our life are the times that maybe God uses to wake us up. And when times are going rough, then we realize that I spent all my time and what did I do with all my time I spent you know, trying to accumulate all the money and wealth in this world. What am I doing with 
what I have? What did, did I really waste my time in life? Or did I make a good use of it? You know, Laodicea had a problem. Turn me to Revelation chapter 3 in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. What was Laodicea's problem? And, you know, we are Laodicea, right? Bible says, because thou sayest, I am what? Rich and what? Increase with goods and in need of what? Nothing. So Laodicea was in need of nothing. You know, Laodicea was actually a city. It was situated in the valley of the Lycus River. And it was a prosperous trade and banking center in Asia Minor. And so it was a prosperous city. And it became so wealthy, Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD. It was so wealthy that they refused the help of the Roman Empire. And they had so much money, they built the city themselves. That's how wealthy Laodicea was. The Laodiceans felt they didn't need anything. You see, the Christians in Laodicea were very wealthy and prosperous. And they had a lot of money. Kind of like how Southern California has a lot of money, right? Prosperous, rich, and increased with goods, right? So many blessings and everything's going great for you and very materialistic. Laodicea was very materialistic at that time. Do you think that could possibly happen that our churches can become materialistic and overconsume? And do you think that when we do anything, do you think it could dull our spiritual senses as well? Do you think, how do you think that's possible? We can, well, all we need, we got everything we need because money gives us everything we need. Why would we need anything else? We are in danger of thinking that we are in need of nothing. And as long as we live a life of selfish ease, we can be deceived into believing that as long as we have all our temporal needs fulfilled, then we're okay. You know, America is like that. When we think that we have everything, why would we need God? We're going to look at the fall of the republic here. And, you know, there are only two true republics. It was the United States of America, and then there was Rome. So let's look at Rome. So going back again, it was what we studied, but we're going to look, go into a little bit more detail what happened. So looking at it here, Rome was a self-governed republic before. They used to govern themselves. And then what happened was, because they ruled the world, a lot of money came in, and they became very wealthy. The businessmen had entire control of the Mediterranean basin, um, the governments had the staffs, the officials, the contractors, negotiators, brokers, merchants, and money poured in from all around the world, and they became very wealthy. Now, look at your handout, and I want you to notice the, the pioneer businessmen of Rome. Notice what it says about them from the book, historian book from Caesar. Um, it says, they had been trained in thrift and economy, in abhorrence of death, in strictest habits of close and careful management. In other words, the Romans were very strict in everything they did. Their frugal education and their early lessons in the value of money led them as a matter of course in becoming very successful. So a lot of people became successful in Rome. In two republics it says that wealth poured in from more and more and luxury grew more unbounded. Palaces sprang up in a city. This is back then in Rome. Castles in the country. Villas at pleasant places by the sea, and parks and fish ponds, and game preserves, and gardens, and vast retinues of servants everywhere. So Rome became very prosperous in all these things. You know, things continue on in Rome. And it said, money was the one thought from the highest senator to the poorest wretch. So back then in Rome, everyone wanted money, from the, the senators down to the poorest person. They wanted money. And then two republics goes on and says again, 
Extravagance in living had increased at a rapid rate among all classes, among the really wealthy in an ostentatious display, or the exhaustion of pleasure, among those even of the moderate fortunes in an effort to ape the ways of the wealthy. So even the middle class aped the ways of the rich. And even among the poor, they aped the ways of the rich. In other words, everyone wanted to have money. And if they didn't have money, they would borrow money to look like they had money and do things so they could enjoy the lifestyle of the rich people. Does that sound kind of familiar today? That's how Rome was. And so because of all this, Rome worshipped money back then. It was the love of money to enjoy luxury. And because the luxury came in, corruption came in. And that's why Juvenal, the Roman historian, he said, luxury came on, so the Roman Empire and the Roman army was an army a lot of nations were afraid of. This Roman army, it says here, luxury came on more cruel than our arms, and advanced the vanquished world with her charm. So as they went out and conquered the world, the money that came in from the world they conquered was the very means that destroyed the Roman Empire. Interesting, huh? So the self-government on your handout here, as wealth came in, luxury came in with the money. And then when luxury came in and selfishness and materialism, vice or sins came in. As sins came in, that means our self-restraint was broken down. And then when the self-restraint is broken down, there's a power of self-government was lost. We talked about this morning, right? Now you understand what self-government is. And then because the self-government was lost, there was a failed republic, because republic means self-government, right? So that was the story. And then because of that, that's when government oppression came in into the Roman Empire. They came in and started controlling everything. And then after the government came in and controlled everything, they used the military. Now, a lot of the sieges, um, some of them were actually generals who became emperors. And because of the soldiers would follow a lot of them, they had a lot of absolute military control over the people. And after that, then Rome fell in 476 AD. So there's a progression. So before Rome was, a, when it was very prosperous, it was a republic. And when the Caesars came, right before um, the BC, right before Jesus came, it became an empire. And that was the beginning of the end because it became very authoritarian. So in other words, it's a transition from a republic to an empire. And that's what happened to Rome. And that's the reason why Rome fell. Now you think, well, that's Rome, but we know that in the United States of America, we speak like a what? Dragon, I mean, in the United States, we speak like how Rome was. So, in the same way, what happened is happening to the United States. God blessed the United States when it first started off. Our American pioneers were strict in their habits of thrift and economy as well. You know, the biblical principles from the Puritan and Protestant influences pervaded the colonies when we first started off in the United States of America. The economy was not only a virtue, but a stark necessity as it was now in a country that was mostly untamed at this time. Because of these practice strict habits of frugality, the money poured in, and we became a very wealthy nation. In such a short time, everyone's such a, so amazed at how not only we became a great nation, but we became such a very uh, wealthy nation as well because of money poured in. But as the money poured in, our principles of thrift and economy were forgotten, and luxurious lifestyles under disguised terms of modern conveniences, pleasure trips, and entertainment slowly crept in. And since then, we've been living in a different nation. Look at your handout. Notice what Ellen White says. Look at inspiration says in Revere and Herald, August 11, 1896. Notice what she says. 
The whole prophecy presents lessons upon what? Temperance, reproving what? Selfishness, what else? Number two, what? Luxurious living. In other words, inspiration says we need to reprove selfishness, luxurious living, and what else? Indulgence in those things that pervert the senses and lead to extravagance and what? Sin. So selfishness, luxurious living and indulgence, materialism, leads to extravagance and sin. And when sin comes in, our self-government is destroyed. And so as a warning, are we living luxurious lifestyles today? Are we? Well, kind of did that little research on the most expensive homes in America. And let me go with the top three, okay? So, are we living luxurious lifestyles in the United States of America compared to where we first started off? Okay, number three goes to a home in Palm Beach, Florida. Guess how much it costs? $195 million, 62,873 square feet in this home, 33 bedrooms, and 47 bathrooms. What are you going to do with 47 bathrooms? And who's going to clean those bathrooms, by the way? <laughs> My daughter, Anya. <laughs> Just going to clean it off. 47. I can't even clean two. Number two, this is here in California. California, I tell you something, you know. Homeby Hills. Who you knows what Homeby Hills is? Does anyone know what that is? Homeby Hills? Okay. Number two, $200 million home, 56,000 square feet. And the number one home is in Bel Air, <laughs> California. You know what that is, right? $250 million. 38,000 square feet home, 21 bathrooms, three kitchens, and five bars, and decommissioned helicopters inside the home as decorations. I mean, why do you need a helicopter inside your home? Is that over-extravagance? Is that lux over-luxurious? Are you following me? That's the type of, we're like, we don't even have someone's money. They don't even know what to do with their money. Decommissioned helicopters inside of your home. In America, idol worship today is money. It's the one thought from the highest senator to the poorest of poor. And I'll give you an example. You know, early in the Iraq war, when the soldiers came to the door and they said to Iraqi and said, you know, an accident happened. There's a military accident shot and killed your family member. Um, what do you want for, to us compensate you? And you know what they say? They'll get mad and say, we want 10 dead American soldiers. That's what they said. But we all know what would happen if something happened in our family and the government did something wrong and one of our family members were killed and they were asked, what do you want for conversation? You know what we would say? We say, we want to go to a lawsuit and we want $10 million. Are you following me? As if the $10 million will somehow soothe the pain of losing someone, right? That's the love affair that America has with money. And just like Rome, there's also today an ostentatious display of wealth from the rich and aping up the rich by the middle class. That's why we're so much in debt. Really being in debt is really trying to get things that you cannot afford so you can actually enjoy the things of the lifestyle of the rich people which you really want to copy, right? 
and the poor people do the same thing. And so that's what's happening. Whether we have money or not, it doesn't matter, as long as we can borrow. You know the average debt per American is $56,632 per person. So per family, you look at about $150,000. Well, the average savings per family is only $8,487. So we're in debt $150,000 average per family, but we're in debt $8,000. We have money in our bank of $8,000. the average. All great nations fell internally before they were destroyed externally. Our greatest fear is not the terrorists on the outside, but the lifestyle that we choose to live on the inside. Luxurious living will be our destruction. It will be our death of the nation. We will be responsible for our national suicide in this nation. You know, that's what's happening here. You look at your hand down. As wealth is coming to the United States and luxury has come more and more, you've seen a lot more sins. That's why you see more corruption in the United States of America and crime going up and shootings and everything and violent crimes. And then you've seen self-restraint being broken down. Then you've seen this power of self-government loss, right? We don't want an anarchy and there's a failed republic. And because we don't want an anarchy, then we want the government to control us. Right? We talked about that, to control us. And so imperial tyranny or government oppression comes in in the end times, you know, there's going to be the same thing happen, military despotism or absolute military control. You know, there's come a time when we told inspiration that says, we need to leave the cities. That time has not come yet. Because there's going to come a time where, she says in inspiration, Ellen White says, there's going to come a time where we will want to leave the cities, but we will not be able to leave. So if we're not be able to leave, what does that mean? That somehow the cities are going to be barricaded and locked down, right? That's the only way. And martial law is going to have to come in to keep people from coming out and people from coming in and just kind of consolidate people within the cities. And that's only going to happen to the military taking over, right? Kind of lock down the freeways. You can't get in and out and just kind of keep people locked in. So that's when the absolute military control and the United States will speak like the dragon how Rome was and how the Roman Empire was. Now turn me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. What was cursed for our sake? Genesis 3, verse 17. You know what the Bible says? This is God's solution for our condition. And unto Adam he said, Because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife, and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground... What does it say next? For what? Thy sake. In other words, the ground is cursed, but it says here, for your sake. In other words, for your benefit. So in other words, God cursed the ground, but actually the curse was actually a blessing for us. In other words, working with our hands was actually a blessing for us. If you believe that, let me say amen. Amen? Look at this quotation. It says, God gave Adam and Eve employment, eating with the school for our first parents, and God was their instructor. They learned how to till the soil and care for the things which the Lord had planted. They did not regard labor as degrading, but as a great blessing. Industry was a pleasure to Adam and Eve. The fall of Adam changed the order of things. The earth was cursed, but the decree that man should earn his bread by the sweat of his brow was not given as a curse. Through faith and hope, labor was to be a blessing to the descendants of Adam and Eve. What do you say, huh? Amen? Productive hard labor is God's great plan to recover us from the ruin and degradation of sin. You know, this is a secret for raising godly children. Do you know that? <laughs> now I realize this, like, even for me, 
When I'm outside working in a garden, there's something healing about that. Especially if you do a lot of mental work, which some ministers do, and some of you are like in an office all day. But there's something there when you're actually outside and you're planting, and it's very healing right out there. And you know, when you work with your children and you're working and um, planting out there things, there's something that bonds your heart. And actually, you know that you're going to notice that if you take your children outside and they learn a practical trade, they're going to do much better, even physically, spiritually, and how you relate to them. Now, there's a lifestyle that God wants to experience. Turn to Isaiah 32, verse 18 in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 18. What type of lifestyle does God want his people to live? Notice the Bible says, And my people shall dwell in a, what? Peaceable habitation, and in sure dwellings, and in what? Quiet, resting places. What do you say? Amen? So we should dwell in places like the country. What do you say? Amen? How many of you like to live in the country? How many of you live in the country? Let me see. Okay, the city life, it can really wear you out. Notice what it says here about, um, from Testimonies to the Church, Volume 3, page 362, about John. John separated himself from friends and from the luxuries of life. Do you see that? This is actually um, the message of John. The simplicity of his dress, a garment woven of camel's hair, was a standing rebuke to the extravagance and display of the Jewish priests and of the people generally. His diet, purely vegetable of locusts and wild honey, was a rebuke to the indulgence of appetite and the gluttony that everywhere prevailed. Temperance in all things is to be connected with the message. What do you say? Amen? To turn the people of God from their idolatry to money, their gluttony, and their extravagance in dress and other things. In other words, we warned that John's message to the world to come, that the message was given right before Jesus was to come, was a message of simplicity and to separate himself from the luxuries of life. If that's clear, let me say amen. Amen? And that's what God wants his people to experience. When we got married, my wife and I, we decided to, we wanted to raise our daughter in the country. So we sold this home that we had in town, and we fixed it up, we modeled, sold it, and then we decided to move in the country. So we moved in that country, what, five acres on the Hamakua Coast, which is uh, very beautiful. It looked like a park. We had the end of the road, it was all by ourselves, and it's so beautiful. And you know, coming home from, you know, from work, and you go up in the mountain, and like, this is so healing, right? And it's been outside. And, and Hawaii, I mean, Hamakor means breath of the ancestors, breath of God. So it's just lush and green everywhere. And this beautiful ohia trees. And it's very nice. So we're out there and we realized that being out there in nature was very healing for not only me, but for my whole family. And not only that, but we lived, this, this was actually, not only did we live in the country, but we lived off the grid. So there's no electrical lines, there are no phone lines, there is no um, water lines, there's no internet cables, there's nothing. So we're out there, you know, with photovoltaic and generator. It was hard, but it was actually one of the best experiences we had as a family. And you know, it drew us very close. You know, we live in a small little trailer, and we had our little house on the side, we store all our things, but our trailer was only 200 square feet. That's how we lived in for three of us. And, you know, we were passing in the churches. And, but we were just living in a small and drew us really close as a family. Like, like, you know, like those small house, tiny homes, right, kind of thing. Tiny house nation kind of thing. So that's how we lived. And, you know, that was the best part of our experience, that like we were really bonded as a family. 
And God really blessed that time together. Now, I know the time has not come yet where we're supposed to get out of the cities yet, but the time will come in the future. But now's the time to even start to begin planning what kind of place you want. You know, you want a place that's away from people. You want a place that, you know, is boarding maybe a forest reserve. So you only have a half an acre, but like the forest reserve can be your whole backyard for free, right? I mean, that kind of planning. You want to have water. Water is important. You don't have water, you're not going to be able to do that much. You know, um, in Hawaiian, the word vai means water, but vai vai means wealthy or rich. Because the Hawaiians believe that once you have water, you're very wealthy because you can grow a lot of things. You can do a lot of things. But without water, you can't really do that much things. So time to start planning is now. And we're going to find that living vital connection with Jesus Christ. Now we must find the quiet of our lives and be still in the country living. That's why it's important. Even to get out and go camping. You know, this summer we took a sabbatical to spend time as a family to reconnect with God and to reconnect with one another. And something about when you go into the natural, you forget about the artificial and the city life, right? And the more you are in the natural and God's creation, you become less materialistic and you just kind of focus on God's creation. And I want that more and be connected with God. How about you? What do you say? Amen? Turn to Isaiah 30, verse 15. Isaiah 30, verse 15. It's a couple chapters before. What is our strength and salvation? Notice the Bible says, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, notice what it says, In returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. In other words, when we rest, we're going to be saved. When we go into quietness, that's going to be our strength. So we go into the country and have a simple lifestyle. It's very powerful. Now, how important is that? Look at your handout. Notice what it says here. You know, these peaceful and quiet places to live are the best found by living in the country, right? But look at this. Um, you know, when we have quietness and rest, that's our strength and salvation. In other words, we must get off the train. Forget the American dream. For that's exactly what it is. It's just a dream because you're going to keep chasing it more and you don't get it, you try harder, you're never going to feel satisfied with it. We need the Jesus dream. What do you say, amen? We chase Jesus and you always be satisfied with the living water. Notice what it says in Desire of Ages, page 74 in your handout. It says, Jesus shunned display. Notice what it says. His quiet and simple life and even the silence of the scriptures concerning his early years teach an important lesson. What is that lesson? This is a lesson. The more quiet and simple the life of the child, the more free from artificial excitement and the more in harmony with nature, the more favorable is it to physical and mental vigor and to spiritual strength. In other words, the more quiet and simple your life is and you raise your kids, to me, this is one of the great secrets of parenting right here. The more simple you raise a child, the better they become physically, mentally, and spiritually. And I've seen that with my own daughter. You know, we kind of let her go for a little while when we were going through hard times when I was sick. This is how God works. It's the amazing thing. We're in a country, and usually you're in a city, you want to move to the country, right? God did the opposite with us. We're living off the grid, seriously in the country, and three years ago, he moved us into suburbia. So now we're actually in town, in the small little city. Isn't that crazy? Sometimes God works out of the common order of things, right? Contrary to all human planning. But he prepared us for the city from living in the country for 10 years, off the grid. 
But now it is, but I know why God would let us back there because now we're ministering to my family who lives in the city. And God is doing miracles in my family. Like miracle after miracle after miracle. My brother and my sister. And we're just like amazed at what God's doing. In order for darkness to become light, light needs to get in contact with darkness, right? And if light's living out in the country by yourself and never come in contact, nothing's going to happen with that darkness. As God said, getting in selfish ease, living out in the country, not doing nothing. So I'm going to throw you back into the city and mingle with the darkness. And that's what he did to us. So now we're in a city... We're ministering to our founding. Like I say, my God's working miracles with my brother. I mean, I can say, like two months ago, I said that he's the last person in the world to become a Christian. And now he's like reading spiritual books I'm giving to him. Um, and he's reading devotional books every morning. He wants to read ahead. I said, don't cheat. Just stick to one day at a time. <laughs> but I give him more books. <laughs> so which I did. And then God's working here. My sister, she had gave her devotional books. She's reading spiritual books every morning. She parks her car in an employee parking lot where she works as a nurse, and she reads every morning. And then, you know, my other sister called me over for her husband was having anxiety attacks. I caution, that's what I deal with best, that emotional healing. Went over there, started talking about the issues in his life. And after that, they were so grateful. And the niece was there. And another niece lost her son about three years ago in a terrible accident with drowning of her four-year-old boy. Tragedy. I gave her books. She's read it. She's... We kind of saw like a, a text chain already of those who, um, who read this book I'm giving out to my family members. Very powerful book when you go to tragedies. So we kind of like God worked backwards us. And here we are in the country. Like, like what in the world is God doing? Bring us backwards, right? Um, but he's doing something in our lives. And so the second secret is the more simple the life of a child, right? So... Every time my daughter's into, like, electronics, she doesn't do well. You know, iPhone, iPad, and all that. But I want you to think about this. But when we take it away and we ground her and we simplify life, we don't get so busy, man, she's a different person. She don't like that, but, you know, she's a different person. Praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> but she's like a good kid. And that's not only the spirit of prophecy that says, it says, the more simple the life of a child, the more free from artificial excitement, the more favorable it is the physical, mental, and spiritual strength. Okay? I have a friend who's a counselor in our schools and says that our children are pressured so much to grow up too fast and so much knowledge coming to the internet so quickly, they're so overwhelmed. The children today are so stressed out from the world they live in today. They cannot handle it. So what's happening is we're getting a lot of like attention deficit disorders, a lot of disorders within. That's what it really is. I'm going to share this. This is a study now, okay? Going on what this inspiration says. They did a study upon all those children who were classified as clinically dysfunctional, okay? And they're all taking medications. Notice what happened. All they did, no medications added, okay? No therapy. All they did was slow down their lives. Don't rush to the soccer practice and music practice and all these, you know, um, sports games and all these different things and activities. Slow life down. That's all they did. Slow it down. No meds, nothing. Slow it down. Go into the home. Declutter everything. Downsize, you know, minimalist kind of mentality. Slow simple things out. Can you hear a big amen? Amen? amen. <laughs> all they did was that. In four months, okay, 68% of these children 
without even changing their diet, 60-80% of these children who were clinically dysfunctional became clinically functional by definition. What do you say, amen? 68%. That's like 70%. God's way is so simple. This simplified their life. They said, well, let's try it again. Let's do another study. They did a study, the same study again. They got exact same results. 68% of the kids became, went from clinically dysfunctional and became clinically functional. You know, God's way works. What do you say? Amen? Maybe some of us here needs to declutter our home. Can you have a big amen? Amen? Maybe some of us need to clean up our cars. What do you say? Amen? That means that I used to be the most messiest person in the world. I was the one where I had my room. You had to walk over stuff to get to my bed. That's how messy I was. Do you know that? Now, I am so neat freak, it drives my wife crazy. <laughs> because I'm like, oh, this is going up. Throw it away, throw it away. Let's go. Let's clean it out, everything. You know, I'm like, too much sometimes, okay? OCD, but that's not good. That's another, that's another healing I need, okay? <laughs> So God's working that in my life. But the more quiet and simple the life of the child, the more free from artificial, electronics, excitement, I'm adding that in there, the more favorable it is to the physical and mental vigor and to spiritual strength. Can you hear a big amen? Amen? Now we transition to the city, and we notice that, you know, why is it, you know, we're having challenges in our family and everything, and even with my daughter, and then finally we started like, well, we're kind of busy, even doing church stuff. So we slowed down on the church things and um, just kind of pull away, just make sure we're not so busy even doing spiritual things. Because you can be busy even doing spiritual things. Isn't that not true, right? And you can be so busy. It's not a quiet and simple life anymore, right? Um, you want too much artificial excitement of the child is not good for that. You want a natural unfolding of the child to happen. So what a lot of people want to do is they want to live out their dreams through their children. They want to be some basketball star, so they're going to train and train their children so they can be basketball stars. And they go to basketball camps and just run them all around and be really good, they live out their dream. They want their kid to be some master musician on the piano. So piano lesson, you practice two, three hours and train, train, train. And you're forcing that child and molding them to be what you want them to be, kind of like the papacy does it to people, right? rather than letting the natural unfolding of who God wants that child to be. What do you say, amen? And you let them, you know, I wanted my daughter to play the ukulele, because I played the ukulele. But you know what? She didn't want to play the ukulele. She wanted to play the piano. So, by God's grace, I let her play the piano. <laughs> she wants to sing. But at times, she doesn't want to sing. You know, last weekend at SWYC, People ask me, like, do, do you force a child? I say, I don't force my child. And, you know, I wanted her to sing Sunday afternoon in my breakout sessions, but uh, she didn't want to sing. And also, it was a blessing to have Kathleen there, and she did a good job. Praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> so she sang instead. So, you know, just granting that it's a natural unfolding of the child, and rather than forcing them and living out your dreams to your child. And that's the gospel, granting the, the child freedom, right, to let God mold them to what he wants them to be and who they really are rather than what you want them to be. That is what the papacy does. They want one mind controlling another mind. That's the spirit of the papacy. You don't want as a parent to, or even as a church leader, and you see that in the churches, you want one mind on the church board trying to control all the other minds. 
they get mad, they get upset on the church body because they want to control everybody, right? Or you want, in the home, you want, there's parents who want to control, one mind want to control the mind of their children. And that's why they come like robots. But as soon as that child leaves the home, they go crazy, right? And I've seen that happen. And I've warned people that. And my church members say, you know, you watch within two years, when, you leave, when that child leaves the home, they're going to leave to church and they want nothing. I tell them straight, they're going to have nothing to do with you. They go all into, all into like shepherd's rod movement in the church and ultra conservative. Some save with compassion, the Bible says. So it's good to be compassionate with a lot of people. But the Bible says, but some save as they're pulling them out of the fire, right? You're not going to say, hey, excuse me, you're standing in the fire. Why don't you step out of the fire? You're not like that. You're going to grab them and pull them out of the fire and yank them, right? So some people, you got to be able to save with compassion, with love. But some people, you got to be straight and direct with them. And that's the only language they can hear, you know, that tough love, right? That's all they know. And so sometimes we have to be that way when we talk. But at the same time, we cannot force people and even especially our children. That's clear. Let me hear you say amen. I want to say amen? amen. You can start wherever you're at. You don't have to move to the country. You can start right now. First step, I always say always do the doable. Right? Don't try and do some of these big things. Oh, I'm going to wait till I buy a new house in the country before I do anything. No. Do the doable. Do what you can do. If you're still living in a city, that's fine. Or you just paint a picture of the country on your wall or something, right? <laughs> just do something like that. Or if you're there in the country, just, like, just make things simple, like declutter your home, right? That's a good first step, right? And then the next thing we do, like maybe keep things clean and simple. And the next thing, like maybe, you know, I had some members. I had a member in my church, eight positions when I first came. Eight positions. How can you do eight positions? What happened, like, you're out there, you know, you know you got to mow the lawn, you know you're cooking dinner, you know you're baking some cookies and all these other things, and when you're not all these different positions, you're so busy doing everything, you know, the, the lawn never gets mowed, right? The cookies get burnt, and the chili gets, you know, just kind of black, right? So everything gets, goes really bad. So you can't really do a good job. You must think about, you know, getting less and less and less. And that's why Alex brought out today, you know, you want to focus and do your best and not to get so busy doing so many things. And I think if you just kind of like, you have eight positions and next year drop it down to six or five. Or maybe you want to go cold turkey, right? And drop to four. And then go to three, right? Or, you know, zero. You can go zero too. But you go two and then one. It kind of goes slowly. And do one, but do it good. Whatever your hand finds it to do, do it with thy might. Do the best you can with that one or two. You know, and that's how you kind of declutter your life. Do what is doable. You can do that. I had a person tell me that eight, huh, I had 16 positions in the church. Kind of like a trophy, right? <laughs> 16 positions. 16 positions. That's his church. You know, that's another sermon, but, you know, sometimes people run from the pain by being busy, and religion can become an addiction to them as well. And so you want to deal with the root cause and heal from that. And I know many Christians, even Adventists, they need to experience healing from the past brokenness. And that's what our, our school does, a healing reign as well. So do what is doable. That is what um, is recommended. And when you do what is doable, you know, God will add to that and God bless it. You know, maybe you want to just get rid of the TV. That's one thing, right? Maybe you just want to get rid of the radio. Just turn it off. You know, in our home, we don't watch TV, you know. We don't be listening to radio. It's totally off. It's just peace and quiet all day. And some of you think, man, it's just still, right? 
<laughs> it's just quiet. But that's when you can hear the voice of God more. You know, we want to listen to Christian music, but we even turn the Christian music off because we just want in stillness, in quietness. That's where you can hear the voice of God. And we go in the car, we drive, we don't even turn on the radio or the, or the CD. We just leave it quiet. And people hate that quietness. It's almost like it's painful, right? But that painfulness is the Holy Spirit pricking your heart and calling you to spend quietness with Him. And I think that's important with these texts, the quietness and stillness. And that's where God wants us to be. So are these doable things, you think? How many are willing to try just a little bit? You know, even after, like, um, maybe just a little thing, like maybe even clean your room or something, you know, just kind of keep it clean. How many are willing to at least try something? Let me see your hands out there. Just a little bit out there. Okay, praise God. You're adventurous in this church. Amen, amen. For each one of us, eventually, whether we're ready or not, someday we will come to an end and pass away. There will be no, no more sunrises, no minutes, no hours or days. All the things that you collected, whether treasured or forgotten, will pass to someone else. Your wealth, fame, and temporal power will shrivel to irrelevance. It will not matter what you owned or owed. Your grudges, resentments, frustrations, and jealousies will finally disappear. So too your hopes, ambitions, plans, and your to-do list will expire. The wins and losses that once seemed so important will fade away. It won't matter where you came from or what side of the track you lived in the, at the end. It won't matter if you're beautiful or brilliant. Even your gender and skin color will be irrelevant. So what will matter? How will the value of your days be measured? What will matter is not what you bought, but what you built. Not what you got, but what you gave. What will matter is not your success, but your significance. What will matter is not what you learned, but what you taught. What will matter is every act of integrity, compassion, courage, or sacrifice that enrich, empower, or encourage others to emanate your example. What will matter is not your competence, but your character. What will matter is not how many people you knew, but how many will feel a lasting loss when you're gone. What will matter is not your memories, but the memories that live in those who loved you. What will matter is how long you will be remembered by whom and for what. A life lived that matters is not a circumstance, but a choice. And what will you choose this afternoon? Will you choose to continue a life of selfish ease? Will you choose to begin a life of sacrifice to bless others? You know, in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted to live selfishly by Satan for himself. And Satan was offering him all the pleasures and luxuries of this world. He took him on top of that mountain, you remember? He's looking down. And Jesus chose the life of sacrifice and simplicity. And praise God who refused to take up that offer. What do you say? Amen? You know, we serve a God that is good and merciful. And we serve a God that can bring healing no matter what we've gone through in our lives. And Jesus has invested so much in you. He invested his heart and soul in you because he loves you. How about investing your life in Jesus Christ? I want that. How about you? Amen? You invested your life in so many other things. How about investing your life in a relationship that really counts, a relationship that will energize your spiritually dead soul? No, we have lived our lives for far too long without that quiet and simple trust in God. Because of this, we have let God down, become guilty of many things we've done wrong. 
but because of God's amazing grace and love for us. He's calling us, He's calling you right now to spend time with Him. The simplicity, to hear the still, small voice every day. We cannot hear the still, small voice if all the noise in this world is drowning out that voice. So I'll make my challenge to you as we close this afternoon service. Turn off all the noises. Turn off the, turn off the busyness. Turn off all the, the, the crying out to you, I need you, I need you, I need you, I need your help. Sometimes before we can help people, we got to make sure that we're right with God first. What do you say, amen? We cannot give that which you do not possess. We got to make sure that we possess God in our hearts. We got to make sure that we possess the love of God. We got to make sure that we possess the power of God. Otherwise, we're just doing work. But if we're connected to God, then God's going to connect us to other people. We're going to be able to minister like we've not been able to minister before. We're going to reach the people we've been praying about. I was praying for my family for 20 years. And I was passing churches for 15 years. And I wasn't able to reach my family. It wasn't until God broke me. I was a medical disability. I felt hopeless and useless. And then God says, okay, now I'm going to really use you because you're not going to feel like you can be used. I like that quote from Ellen White. It says, God's true workers are never laid inside. In sickness and in health, in life and in death, God uses them still. What do you say, amen? And you know, is when you think that you can't be used and you've almost given up on life, that's when God's going to come in and he's going to use you because it's not you anymore. It's God. You can realize I can, when you're weak, that's when you're strong, amen? When I thought my life was useless, I'm not passing over the church when I was a medical disability, that's when God used me the most. And God has worked more in the last three years in reaching my family than the last 20 years before that in pastor ministry. That's why God's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to work out of the common order of things that's contrary to all human planning. He's going to take... He's going to look at, he's going to take the reins into his own hands and he's going to work things out of the common order thing, meaning he's going to work in a way like, whoa, I'm not used to. And that's what the Bible says, I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In other words, God's going to take you only when you're blind and broken, you can't see, you're going to like blind, and God's going to lead you in a way, wait a minute, I've never been here before. I'm blind, I, I can't see God. And God said, don't worry, just trust me. And you're following God and you're like, I'm going to take you by a way you, you do not know. I'm going to take you in a direction like, you don't know this direction, but trust me, I'm going to do miracles because the way you do know, nothing's going to happen that way. But I'm going to take you in a way you do not know and that's when the miracle's going to happen. And that's the God I serve and God wants you to experience that experience. No, God pleads for us. Jesus pleads for us before the Father. He pleads our cause. You, he writes our wrongs. No, Jesus, you plead my cause. You write my wrongs. You break my chains. You overcome. You gave your life to give me mine. You say that I am free. That's what this weekend is about, freedom. You say that I am free. And you're so grateful to God for all that he's done for you. You say, and you cry out to him, how can it be? How can it be? We serve a God who loves us so much. And because he's done so much for us, we say in our hearts, how can it be, God? Because of this, this is the only motivation for making any changes in our lives. What do you say, amen? We don't do things just because. And the only way that's going to change our hearts is that we must see a God who loves you. 
we must say in our hearts, how can you love us so much? And when we see this love, that is the only true motivation for wanting to serve God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. So may this be your motivation for making that change, for maybe getting radio, turning off that radio, or maybe turning off that TV. How many want to just try something? Let me see your hands out there and say, Lord, I want to come in. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's been a joy um, being here this weekend with you. Um, thank you for staying. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and love. And as we finish up here, we pray that you may guide us and bless everyone. They want to make changes in their life. All weekend, they heard these messages. And each message had a different appeal. Lord, may you impress upon each person's heart what to do and show them your love that they may change with the right motive. And so, Lord, we thank you for already hearing and already answering our prayers. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.